feeling disoriented is a metacognitive feeling that is a, is a way to monitor your own knowledge of the environment. And uh, it happens for very strange reasons. So people think that you feel disoriented when you do not recognize a place, which is also true. I mean, you get in the first time in a new airport and then you feel disoriented because you don't see anything, but you, you can mobilize and for your um, wayfinding. But you also feel disoriented when you discover that you are in the same place and you shouldn't be there. So uh, this happens all the time. People uh, in the snow, at a certain point, they start seeing trucks in the snow. Say, oh, good, but someone else is, is, is walking here ahead of me. And after a while, they discover they're circling. They discover they are exactly the same uh, trucks. And at this point, they feel disoriented. So recognition of a place is not a sufficient condition for orientation. It can also be a condition for disorientation. This is what happens here for me. Welcome to Creativity Pioneers a podcast by the Moleskine Foundation. Here, we engage in conversations with unique creative minds to explore and expand our understanding of creativity and its transformative power. This season is a collection of live talks that were recorded during the first European lockdown. I'm your host, Adam Asane, Moleskine Foundation CEO. Please subscribe now to our podcast on the platform of your choice and tune in for new episodes. I look forward to reading your thoughts and comments on our social media channels. Enjoy the conversation. Roberto is one of those uh, uh, people that you need to read and really make sure that you go through all the different things that he's doing that he did because it's quite impressive. Um, even if in the end, you know, you can summarize it, everything, Roberto is a philosopher in, in, uh, in its uh, fullest uh, sense. Um, he's a member of the Academia Europea, um, the director of research of the CNR in Paris and the director of the Institut Jean Nicot. Uh, he's a professor also at the School for Advanced Studies and Social Sciences. Uh, he's, a, he's an author of several books, many translated in, uh, in more than 10 languages. Um, one, I would say above all, uh, against the digital colonialism, and I say above all mainly because it connects very much with the work that we do at the Foundation and really sparks an incredible debate around um, the use of digital tools uh, in schools, but also the lesson of cold and others. Um, he wrote many articles for prestigious uh, um, uh, newspapers and magazines, um, uh, like the Sole 24 Ore, uh, the MIT Press, and, uh, and it's really, you know, in these years, uh, he's made a really unique uh, group of research that always create and allow you to develop like a quite an interesting and unique gaze on things that we take almost often for, for granted. With Roberto, we found these three words. One is creativity, but with a twist, with a specific connotation in terms of institutional creativity. Uh, so a kind of scale up concept <laughs> of, uh, of what we discussed like a couple of weeks ago. Super resilience, I think is quite interesting also to figure it out, you know, since resilience was not enough, let's add uh, an interesting suffix to it. And then finally, the word uh, orientation. Uh, then Roberto, I think you're going to give us like an interesting con connotation to it. But I think orientation is also like one of those words that we take often too much for granted. Um, so 
to start to start this, Roberto, when we when we explore and we came up with this with those three words, what were what was your main thoughts? You know, what what captivated your attention there? Uh, yes, first of all, thank you very much for having me um, engage in this conversation, and uh, it's uh, the, the public part of it, which we, we are having now, is a follow-up of a long conversation that we had uh, over the years, I would say, and now we, we have a very specific situation, and we want to, to look into this situation and, and maybe uh, capitalize on things that we said and we did. And... Um, I would like to say one important thing. So I am a researcher. So I'm a person who has been engaged all his life in uh, doing research, in managing research, and in communicating research. So I, I tend to be very much on the academic side. Uh, my mindset is very much academic. And but there is something that really struck me in this particular crisis that we were, everybody was totally unprepared to unprepared to understand what's going on. And now there is a flurry of research which is coming out of the uh, COVID-19 crisis. There is a lot of uh, many people who are starting new projects, also in our lab, there are 20 new projects related to that because it's such an incredible situation. But then this is a sort of post hoc and it's not, um, there is a, a small phase at the beginning of the crisis in which we didn't know exactly what was happening and the public powers were not clear on what were happening, what was happening, and was not clear how to act on our knowledge because there, there was no knowledge of knowledge was not, um, it was very foggy. So we were very disoriented in that. And this is one of the things that prompted me. But I would like to tell a small story to get it started. And the story is a story of a letter that we received uh, my institution received uh, at the very beginning of the crisis when we saw it was March uh, around March 11. So we saw what was going on in Italy, and we were not doing anything in France, and that was very puzzling to me. So we see that something is happening to Italy. We see that there is an exponential development in Italy, and we only have a few cases in France, but this is exponential. So something is going to happen here. Why aren't we doing anything? because we didn't know. So there was no, no good access to knowledge. So we get this letter. This letter comes from a, a, a group of um, uh, Asian students who, of course, have a, a story behind them of managing a similar crisis in the past. And the letter, um, I mean, you, you could break into tears reading this letter. The letter was, look, we are going to the dorms and people are partying in the dorms. And you're reading things in the newspapers that the crisis is coming to us and people are partying in the dorms and we are harassed because we are wearing masks and we are uh, pigeonholed as Asian students. Oh, the typical Asian student with a mask where people are packing and, and they say, well, we are wearing masks, not to protect ourselves, but to protect the others. So this is something what we know now. Everybody knows we have, we have read zillions of pages about masks, but then uh, it came as a kind of a, a, 
as a big spot of light in our discussions that the reason why people are wearing masks in Asian countries is not for protecting themselves, but for doing two things, actually protecting others and uh, making it possible to, um, to let other people accept the presence of masks. So you wear a mask for being effective in blocking the, the, the spread of the disease, but also uh, for a performative reason. If you wear a mask, other people who need to wear a mask are not sorted out as uh, exceptions. So that letter was really uh, moving and we have been also one of the first institutions to, to move fast on the crisis. So we, we moved online everything way before uh, the official confinement uh, declaration in France, uh, way before it's been four days, but as the crisis is exponential, four days mean a lot here. This was one first tipping point in the conversation. I would like to make this point because it takes us back to uh, the other talk by Simon Jamy on, on masks. The second tipping point is again related to masks, and this time is related to the way masks have been introduced in the conversation by governments, not by uh, the Asian students. The Asian students I mentioned because I wanted to say, okay, there is a, a strange epistemology of a crisis. We don't see uh, how things happen and you, you need somebody else to tell you what's going on. So it's important in these cases to have other people, other viewpoints on the crisis in order for you to make the right steps. But the second tipping point was when we got this information by the government that it would have been advisable to produce, to homemade our own masks. And then this is about the end of March. You start seeing this in the press. Uh, you have many articles in, in France, in, in the United States, uh, big tutorials on how to uh, homegrown, uh, homegrown or grown your, your own, uh, um, your own uh, mask. And it's a tipping point in the following sense. Um, I'm very happy to be asked to produce my own mask. I'm very happy to be put in the responsibility chain as a person who takes care of everybody's health, not only my health. But I ask myself a question. My government, uh, the government of the United States, the government of France, of Italy, are asking citizens to produce their own masks. And we're talking about masks. We're not talking about uh, high-tech um, Entities. So masks that you can produce at home are masks which are definitely not high tech. And there is something wrong somewhere in asking this to people. There's something wrong somewhere. There's something wrong because it looks as if nobody is really in charge here. So it, it looks as if, as if the government is telling us, I can't do anything. I can't do anything for you. Take your health in your hands. And this pattern during this crisis is coming up time and again, time and again. Uh, now there is deconfinement coming and uh, mark my words, it's going to be a request of choosing individually between working and staying safe. It's a request which has been made already to medical workers, to workers in the second logistics line, but uh, governments are going to ask us to to choose between uh, working and, and stay and stay healthy and safe. So, and, and this is my point relative to the to the three words that we are going to to discuss today. If I am in charge 
meaning that I am left to myself. And I have to choose at this level of decision-making. So in which a government is giving up its responsibility of protecting my health and asking me to protect my and everybody's health by asking me to produce a, a mask at home. Or is asking me to take my uh, responsibility in my hands for deciding whether I should stay safe or work. So choosing between health, health and, 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 and uh, being uh, unemployed or employed. If this is the request, I do feel entitled. I think I have an entitlement. And this is the main point I'm, I'm going to present today. So I have an entitlement to ask more as a citizen for the future. So to have a larger say in decision-making than they the one that I have today. Today we are in a strange situation in which MDs are choosing, medical doctors are choosing for us, and governments are more or less following this. It's not clear how long this will uh, last. But if I am requested to make this choice individually at this level, at this survival level, this means that governments, as they are today working, are not the appropriate level of decision making, and something different has to be put into uh, put into place. Especially as the crisis that we're living today is a, is a very is an enormous crisis relative to the crisis we had 10 years back. But it is a minimal crisis relative to the crisis which is waiting for us in uh, the middle of the century when the climate bomb is going to explode. So this is the point in which we really have to do something uh, at, at, an, at an institutional level, which is my, the point of one of the three words that we've chosen, the institutional creativity. Uh, in order to get prepared for the next crisis and in order to get uh, hyper uh, resilient. So this is a, is a kind of an introduction to our topic. Um, as I said, I'm a, I'm a researcher, so I'm, my research has been on, on many issues, mostly related to space and objects in space, uh, space of our uh, ordinary interaction with the world, not, not, uh, not the space of the stars. Or, um, and it, recently, I, I worked a lot on navigation and uh, wayfinding, that is the way we can determine where we are and choose the best path to get to the destination that we set to ourselves. And in this research, a lot is now um, related to uh, the feeling of disorientation, which is also something that everybody seems to experience today, metaphorically. I'm more interested in the um, no metaphorical sense of disorientation when you, you get lost, you are in a new city or in the woods or in, in some other situation. And I'm trying to study the ways in which you can prevent disorientation and in which you can uh, get out of a disoriented situation. So prevent, uh, prevention and remediation to disorientation. Disorientation is a crisis. When you are disoriented, you are in a crisis. And so you have to, to do something. Maybe just stay put is a possibility, uh, but you have to do things in order to, um, you, you cannot just let things happen when you are disoriented. You have to make decisions. So what do we know about human disorientation? Because humans are peculiar, other animals do very different things. Pigeons use the magnetic field. Uh, mice who run into tunnels have a way to keep track of the different movements they make in, in the tunnel. 
We look very much like mice, but uh, we have very specific, uh, very specific feature that our internal GPS system is totally driven by visual stimuli, visual patterns. It's not very technical. It's just that we need to see things, to see distant things in order to feel oriented. If we lose touch, visual touch or auditory touch, but mostly visual touch with uh, things which are far away from us, we feel disoriented. We know this because it's very easy to predict cases in which we feel disoriented when we don't have visual access to distant landmarks. Uh, for instance, when you we are in a fog or at night, you you get you, you get lost and you feel disoriented. Or when the environmental condition change, so for instance, when you are uh, in the woods because you cannot see the distant landmarks, you see a lot of things around you, but not things which are distant. Or in the open sea, the high seas which is one of my research fields right now. I go some field work on, on the high seas. You don't have access to, you have access to the horizon, but the horizon is not a landmark. It's just uh, a way for you to study it, but you cannot, you do not see distant things, so you get lost. And a lot of history of navigation is, a, is, a, is the history of trying to remediate the difficulty that you have uh, when you are uh, at sea. But you, you, you also get lost in, in cities, when there is a lot of repetitive architecture, which uh, works against uh, the possibility for you to create a mental map. So if we want to create a mental map and navigate by this mental map, we need to access uh, distant visual landmarks. And this, I think, is important for the current situation. Uh, as you said, uh, we are not uh, creating a how-to guide. Uh, we are not uh, um, really writing down a survival guide, although when you talk about disorientation, this is what you want to do, so can be survival. But still, we can learn some lessons from that. And um, I'm, I think I'm just going to say something at this point about uh, uh, the next small sequence, which is about uh, what is the lesson that we can get from this trend of research, research which is related to disorientation. So it is time in a crisis to do a very simple thing, is look for distant landmarks look for things which are very far away visually this is the obvious thing to do in the disorientation crisis but in this general crisis in which we metaphorically we are metaphorically disoriented we have to to look for metaphorical visual distant landmarks which should guide our action today of course we have to get out of the crisis of course we have to go to find uh, a way to to solve the, the problem of the emergency rooms mm -hmm. uh, clogging, but at the same time we have to move much farther away in in our reflection. So I'm, what I'm going to say is very simple. I do not have on this, any. I'm just, I'm yes. just I would like to ask on this because this uh, this idea of uh, a metaphorical disorientation, as probably like many of us are feeling now, and the first thing that I want to ask is that. When do you realize that you are disoriented? What happened in that in that in that beginning of a crisis? And uh, and also, it's about um, whether the moment that landmarks are not there, or maybe they are there but they are not sure. They are not landmarks that you can trust. You know, um, 
what happened then? What happened in that, in that type of situation? Should you create imaginary landmarks? Should you believe and trust untrustworthy landmark? How should that play out? These are excellent questions, so, and I'm grateful that you're asking them. So, this, getting disoriented, getting, feeling disoriented is a, is, a, is, a, is a feeling, is a metacognitive feeling that is a, is a way to monitor your own knowledge of the environment. And uh, it happens for very strange reasons. So people think that you feel disoriented when you do not recognize a place, which is also true. I mean, you get in the first time in a new airport, and then you feel disoriented because you don't see anything that you, you can mobilize and, uh, for your um, wayfinding practices. But you also feel disoriented when you discover that you are in the same place and you shouldn't be there. So uh, this happens all the time. People uh, in the snow, at a certain point, they start seeing trucks in the snow. Say, oh, good, someone else is, is, is walking here ahead of me. And after a while, they discover they're circling. Mm -hmm. They discover they are exactly the same uh, trucks uh, left by, by, by themselves. And at this point, they feel disoriented. They feel disoriented and they panic because uh, so recognition of a place is not a sufficient condition for disorient for orientation. It can also be a condition for disorientation. This is what happens here for me. Um, uh, in, in in the case of a crisis, France discovers that they are exactly where Italy was, although they should be somewhere else. It is incredible that uh, France is following exactly the same curve as Italy. It doesn't make any sense from a policy-making viewpoint. France should have acted earlier when uh, Italy was acting because Italy was, was, was ahead. So the disorientation comes from situations like this in which you recognize something where you shouldn't be. And um, the imaginary landmarks are an important part. I, I'll get back to that, but this is something that happens in, in, uh, in ocean, oceanic navigation, the ocean, um, the uh, Micronesia, um, culture, which is unfortunately lost. Some of it has been revived artificially in the last 20 years, but uh, the colonization of uh, the Oceanic Triangle, the Pacific Triangle, over huge expanses of water with very few chances of getting back safely unless you really are very lucky or dedicated, was, was done by using techniques, and one of these was the ETAC technique. The ETAC technique is imagining islands. As, you, as you're moving, and these imagined islands provide you um, a way to keep track of your movement relative to other islands. It's one of the many things that actually, the important point about uh, getting out of a disorientation crisis is not that you can rely on a single technique. You have to be hugely redundant. Redundancy is the way to uh, get the disorientation situation sorted. Uh, you're redundant because you use, I mean, take Micronesian navigation, they use uh, patterns of tides, the crossing of waves, birds, uh, smell, uh, things in water, and a number of other things, and, and stars, of course, and, but not a single one would have been sufficient, and each of them was necessary. So getting out of the disorientation crisis, you need a variety of uh, different tools. This is the same thing that I've been defending for the digital uh, the use of digital uh, tools in the school. I'm not against the use of the digital tools in the school, not at all. I just think they cannot be the only solution. Um, typically what you have is uh, digital tools which are imitation tools, like the one we're using now, is an imitation of, a, of an exchange. 
either representation and exchange or replacement tools like tutorials and things like that. And both are fine. I have nothing against them, but then you need everything else in order to have a, a proper um, education setting. And we see now we, we, we are going to measure this after this crisis because we're going to have to see uh, the type of progress or, or difficulties that students have in, 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 uh, in this context where the only interface is a digital interface. But both, both this case and the case of the orientation are very similar in the sense when you have a crisis or a difficulty or a very complex problem like education, education is a hugely complex problem, it's not a simple problem, then you have to be redundant if you want to solve the problem. Mm. And this is the methodological point I would like to make uh, a bit later in this, in this small talk. So, uh, I hope this answers your question, but I think it's an important point. So, getting into the disorientation situation is uh, a consequence of many different factors. And it is, it, it, I mean, we shouldn't just imagine that it is getting lost because you don't know the place. You, you may get lost because you know the place and you shouldn't be there. And this is what happens today. We know this place. We've been there before. We had the, the Spanish flu. We had many catastrophes. We shouldn't be here. And so this is why we feel disoriented. The government shouldn't ask me to produce a mask at home. I am disoriented by this. We shouldn't be here. As I said, I don't have, um, the, the idea is that we, we, if we want to get out of a crisis, we have to look uh, to distant landmarks. And as, as I said, and as you, you told me before, I don't have any specific recommendations or examples. It's not, uh, it's not a how-to, it's, it's not a textbook for getting out of a crisis, and I don't know, basically. But I think I, I can show a couple of examples that tell us what is going to happen and what maybe should happen. So something not just of a prediction, but more of a, uh, of a hope. Examples that show one important thing, that in spite of the institutional uh, disaster, Society is already very resilient as a number of um, antibodies to, to get over the crisis. And the important thing is to leverage these, these antibodies. Two examples of what I, I've been uh, working on uh, recently or been studying from close up. One is this uh, project uh, which is called Continuité Pédagogique, so um, pedagogical continuity. It's a website that was produced in, within one week of the declaration of um, confinement in France, the, uh, the foreclosures of schools, by a group of volunteers who told themselves, well, look, we have all the schools going online in no time, and definitely there, there are going to be many teachers who have no uh, acquaintance at all with the tools like Zoom or BigBlueButton or other tools. So in, they created a website which was a, a brokerage website for having uh, volunteers meet teachers in need. And you know, in one week, they created the website and they got 800 volunteers, which is huge. And still, the number is still going up. I mean, it's sort of, uh, of course, uh, there is a ceiling uh, in, in number of volunteers for there are so many volunteers, and they have 400 chats each day with different uh, teachers for telling them how to use uh, this and other technology. So this is, a, I think, is a great example. And, and the, the Ministry of Education, of course, I am on record, so I'm not happy of, about seeing this, but <laughs> did not 
take this much into account, at least at the beginning. So it was not because it was not top down, and uh, but it, it it was a way to 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 sort out. Uh, uh, a huge problem. The other uh, great case, uh, we had an example in Italy. We had I, I followed from close up the example in uh, in France simply because these are friends of mine. Uh, is the example of the um, Decathlon mask. So the recycling of a scuba diving mask for uh, making a, a protective for MDs in hospital situations. You probably everybody knows about that because it's been in the media, but. At some point, uh, a group of makers and, uh, and a group of um, people working on, on collaborative science, trying to create low-cost instruments for analyzing the ocean uh, and climate, climate change. So small uh, microscope, $2 microscopes and things like that, uh, discovered that it was possible to reuse and readapt the scuba diving mask which is, uh, was very popular last year and two years back, into a protective gear for, um, for MDs in hospitals and, uh, or for nurses in hospitals. So what happened? It has taken, I think, exactly 17 days for going from the idea to mass production and accreditation by the um, health ministry. And that was done by having um, uh, evening meetings on platforms like Zoom mm -hmm. and uh, um, a collaborative uh, tool like Slack, I forgot which one. But then in 17 days, it was possible to put around the table all the important actors. The important actors are the makers, the scientists, the medical doctors, and uh, people from uh, the business who were able to transform uh, a 3D printer idea into a mass production of a mask. And now they're producing thousands of masks each day uh, out of this. Um, you have to produce an adapter for the mask in order for it to be safe, uh, uh, bacteriologically safe. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a view of what should happen in the future in the near future. This kind of vertical integration between different actors uh, on quick projects that uh, address um, complex problems and complex problems which require also an interdisciplinary. It's not only biologists, it's a number of different people, interdisciplinary and inter, different categories of people should be around the same table. And this is a very interesting because the the infrastructure is there already, so it's this kind of platform that we're using, and a number of other, uh, mind, a big mindset which is behind that, which is the mindset of open science. So the collaboration is between Stanford, uh, Manu Prakash, who's um, the big maker of, uh, of uh, Stanford, and the group of Plankton Planet in, in France, uh, Colomban de Vargas and other people who were able to do something which is um, multilateral and, and, and quick. So I, I spent a few moments on this example because I think it's a great example of the type of things that we are um, hoping to have. And it, it's a kind of um, creativity, which is not only creativity of the idea and of the making of the idea, it's, a, it's an institutional creativity. So they created a new institution, basically, a kind of... Uh, um, quick and dirty operational team 
and I repeat, it was not a simple feat moving from the idea to mass production and accreditation in 17 days. It's not something that you typically get in, in the... In the really, but I think like in this term, because you, you, we take a, a specific example of, you know, like the makers, you know, and, and things that are actually happening, you know, all over the world every time. They just, they, the only difference is that they remain at a, at a small scale. And then now we have this secret ingredient that is this emergency, this, this crazy urgency and, and public pressure that is happening. And that there is some, uh, some connection that is happening at an institutional level. Now, though, it seems to me, though, that to then transit from this to an institution, then there is almost like a, an intrinsic, that's almost like an intrinsic impossibility. Because it seems that in this, the secret ingredient is the urgency, is the sense of the emergency, and that, and that element aligned. If we take out that, then the complexity of institutionalize that, it becomes clear. So how this will not remain one, you know, great form of uh, imagination and, and, uh, and operational creativity and, and actually being able to be institutionalized. Yes, right. This is a, it's a great question again, and um, thank you for, for asking it, because uh, there, are, there is an important point here, which is the definition of an institution. So we have to make sure institution is not just the, uh, an international um, a building filled with people from many countries who are sitting around the table, typically white males, and discussing this and that in, in, in order to decide the sorts of humanities. No, we're talking about institution is everything which is um, related to a certain ritual of, of um, making things public and accepting the complexity of the public decision making. And these rituals are, do not necessarily require uh, statuses, do not necessarily require, um, there was no status for that, it was just uh, not even a, a, a memorandum of understanding, it was just people sitting around the table and speeding up the, the process. So uh, in, in one of the other lectures that you, you had in the Spiring Mornings, uh, the, the, the issue was um, discussed of a, of a very specific institution, which were the uh, truth and reconciliation um, assemblies, which are not institutions in the sense of, um, they're not churches, they're not, <laughs> uh, it, it's an institution in the sense that there is a ritual. So mm -hmm. they're processes uh, and they are codified processes. So institutions here are basically codified processes. And uh, I, I mentioned this because, I, and I think it's a very important point. Then I get back to the, the, the issue of the pressure that you're making, how to make pressure on the, uh, on society or small parts of the society so that we can keep this institutional lab always working. Um, it, it, it is important to see that the process is what, uh, what matters here and the creativity is in, in, is in the process. The pressure is important as well because uh, the pressure here comes from a kind of uh, late coming panicking on, on the crisis. So, I, I, there is a myth of not making, not having people panic in a crisis. And it's, it's a total myth. I think it's total bullshit that we, we should uh, not, we should try to stay calm in a crisis. Completely absurd. You need some amount of panicking in a crisis. Otherwise, people are not doing anything. 
So panicking generates an, an, an emotional response, and this is, emotional response is what pushes us to do things. There was not enough panicking in the COVID-19 crisis, not enough. It, it came very late when people started to see um, scores of people dying in, in emergency rooms filled with uh, uh, patients suffering be, be, beyond reason and, and scores of them. At this point, some kind of panicking um, setting and um, it, it's a myth that people react in, in, a, in a disordered panic in, a, in an emergency. Some of them do, maybe 5%, maybe 10%, but most of them just behave totally orderly. People were describing as panicking uh, the fact that um, um, you have uh, long lines of people uh, doing their groceries uh, for two weeks. But it's not a panicking behavior, it's a rational behavior. They told you to stay confined for two weeks, and you go, you, you do your groceries for two weeks. That's uh, totally rational. It's not a panicking behavior. So panic, some more panic should be there and, and should, uh, it, and it's not there enough. And this is the case, I think, um, for the next crisis. We are not yet feeling the appropriate level of panic for the climate um, deregulation, the climate uh, uh, change uh, crisis, which is, which is coming. But, uh, I, I want to insist, uh, this is, was a sort of an aside on the panic because you asked, but I want to insist on the, on, the, on the main point, which is what we are looking for and what people should, I think, should be part of their mindset now is that to move to the next level, to move to, to exit this crisis and to be prepared, to be super resilient for the next crisis, it cannot be just me and you talking. It cannot be just uh, someone writing uh, articles, opinion in newspapers. It cannot be just uh, a new manifesto and things like that. Um, it's not just think tanks. It should be something different. So when you raise your hand and when you uh, talk to an audience, the crisis as, and the mask crisis, which is one example of that, gives you an entitlement to ask for more. Ask for more and gives you an entitlement for you to be in the mindset of an institutional change. And an institutional change is creating new processes, new institutions, new, um, and you're, you're going to see what it, we, I'm going to make an example so this is maybe clearer. To get out of this crisis, we have to change our behavior massively, massively. And it cannot be just staying home for the next five years. It has to be something different. So theaters have to be different. Uh, transportation, public transportation has to be different. Everything has to be very different. Um, unless we, and it's not enough that we find a, a vaccination against this because many other things are going to happen. So we have to prepare for the next crisis and things have to be very different from what they are now. So there is a lot of work today for uh, designers who cannot just reinvent the world, they have to adapt the existing world to the new situation. And this is room in which each of us has the right to come with their entitlement and to raise their hands and say, I have a saying in how this is going to change. I have to walk, I have to, I have to take a, a public transportation 
um, I have to take that public transportation to, to go to, to my workplace, maybe 30 minutes, say. Well, I, I'm happy to choose a different way. Maybe I can bike there, but I don't want to trade to have, again, the choice between uh, being safe and work. Mm -hmm. uh, because riding my bike today is going to be dangerous. So Paris has done the right thing here, has done the right thing here, which is they're planning, at least for the time being, to double the bicycle lanes in Paris, because they see there is no other way for having so many people go to their workplace without taking the dangerous public transportation. And people will be very happy to ride their bikes if it was a safe uh, way to get there. So this is again uh, institutional creativity entering into the process and uh, saying very simply, I'm denying the alternative between uh, working and being, uh, being safe. It's not an alternative. I want to both work and be safe. This has been a really uh, fascinating reflection, um, you know, starting with, you know, especially now, this idea of orientation and, and, and how to move uh, in, in, this, uh, in this context. And I think you, you really underline the, the importance also of um, be resilient also in a sense of uh, having more tools and being able to and accepting the fact that you don't have one solution. <laughs> there is not a one-fit-all solution. There is a claim to me also the sense of um, responsibility. Uh, that comes to us, but with a sense of an entitlement also that I think is, uh, is, quite, is quite interesting. And ultimately, again, this idea of creativity and imagination in a very practical term. And this idea, you know, what I, what I really gain of, of your thoughts is when you say, in order for us to really create and find our, our way, whatever it is, we need to also, in some cases, create our own landmark in order to, to move uh, forward for whatever forward means. Thanks for listening to our new podcast, Creativity Pioneers. If you'd like to check out other episodes and know more about our mission, please visit moleskinfoundation.org. Keep on following this podcast and share your comments on Facebook and Instagram at Moleskin Foundation. Until next time, stay creative.